you have your Bibles, turn them over to Romans the 12th chapter. Romans the 12th chapter, we'll just be looking in a review way at what we've covered in the 12th and then going into the, the 13th chapter. Paul begins in the 12th chapter by saying that uh, in view of God's mercy, uh, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. And we noted when we looked at this to start with that uh, contrary to maybe a thinking from a traditional standpoint that uh, uh, service to God was a matter of coming to the service two times on Sunday and once on Wednesday and, and if you did that, that was your worship to God. There's no question that, that it's good to go to the public service and worship or study uh, God's word. But in reality, the, the Christian worship to God is an all-encompassing thing. And he says that we are literally to present ourselves as a living sacrifice. And this is our spiritual act of worship. So we've only begun to understand our relationship to God when we actually present ourselves as a living sacrifice. And we noted that this means that in all of our endeavors in life, we are first and foremost a Christian. Uh, that whether we're on the job, whether you're a husband or a wife or a parent, that the decisions that we make are ones that are to be made after asking ourselves the question, what would God have us do? What would the Lord have us do in this particular decision? And where the sacrifice comes in is when you don't always do what you want to do, but you do what Christ, what God would have you do. And we noted that a number of times there is going to be a difference. That our flesh doesn't always want to do the right thing. In fact, that shouldn't surprise us even if we're not a Christian. This thing of, of, of presenting a living sacrifice. We noted, for example, that those of us who get up early in the morning to go to work, a lot of times we don't want to. And so we sacrifice what we would want to do which is lay there in bed for another hour, an hour and a half. And we get up and we go to work so we can make a living to provide for our family. So what you're really doing when you do that is you're sacrificing yourself for the good of the family as a whole. Or when you are very tired and you've put in a full day's work and you find out that uh, uh, there is a death in the community or, or there's some outstanding thing that has happened where somebody needs you in some way and although you're tired and if you did exactly what you wanted to do you would go in and relax and read the paper or watch TV or whatever it is that you do that relaxes you uh, maybe just sit down but even though that's what you want to do you say this is what I need to do what you have done you have sacrificed yourself for that. And we noted that on Wednesday, uh, when, we, when the church has a Bible study, and you've worked all day, and you're tired, and there's people pulling at you in every different function, and you make the decision, the, the brethren are meeting to study the Bible. Uh, not only do I need Bible study, but there may be visitors there that I could encourage or invite over or get to know or something of that nature. And so although you're tired, and if you did exactly what the old flesh wanted to do, you would sit at home, but no, you say, I'm going to do what would be the right thing to do. You have sacrificed uh, yourself. And this morning, 
you may have been up late last night, you may have worked extremely hard or whatever, and you've got to go back to work on Monday, and, and this is one, maybe the one morning in the week that you don't have to set the alarm. And yet you make the decision to get up and, and to come and to give thanks to God uh, for what he has given to you, to, uh, to reverently partake of the supper in remembrance of the sacrifice of his son, and to engage in worship and all, what you're doing, you're sacrificing uh, time that, that you could have done exactly whatever the flesh wanted to do to do the right thing. It's not that you don't want to be here, but I'm saying the flesh, it's sort of like water. Water always goes in, in the down direction. The flesh will always want to gravitate towards the e easiest position. Uh, when you go to college, the old brain wants to take the easiest courses. You have to make it. Uh, take uh, the harder courses, uh, you would like to take the, the easier courses. And so it is that when we sacrifice ourselves, and he says our life as a Christian is one where we don't just go through life doing our own thing, getting all the gusto out of life, uh, following the very slogans that the, the world offers to, uh, that would allow you to think you're cheated any time that you sacrifice yourself to anything other than yourself. But Christians really are presenting themselves as a living sacrifice. And then we noted the key to the whole passage and everything else we're studying here. He uses what he's talked about in the first 11 chapters and says, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies. In other words, with a view towards what God has done and is doing for you, that becomes your motivation. And I know it and state again, it took me a long time to learn this, that true motivation for Christians is not a hellfire and brimstone preacher. It's not browbeating by other members of the church and all the people that need that kind of thing have never been converted. The motivation will come from within. When a person really and truly understands what God has done for them, as we discussed last week in the sacrifice of Jesus, when we really come to grips with how much God loves us and what he has done, what he is doing for us, then, in view of all of that, we can begin to think about being the kind of people that God would have us be. Now, in the next part of this, uh, he then spends his time telling us really what is involved in offering ourselves as a living sacrifice. And so he talks about our function as a church, that we look at ourselves as a body, and you don't be ashamed of, of whatever gift that you have or you don't have, that all of us have different functions, just like the members of our body, and we each are to do the thing that we do best in order to benefit the entire body in order to serve the world. Enrique is in Mexico City. You and I are sending money down there. We're each doing our part. Uh, he needs it. We could all get up right now and go to Mexico City, but the first thing you're gonna to have to do is look for a job when you get there. And all of us together could probably get a job down there that make the two or three of us could make right up here. And so we're, we're up here and we're sending to him down there. And uh, the letter was read from Mark uh, earlier today. Uh, he's going to uh, Czechoslovakia and some places over in, over in Europe and other young people are gonna go over there. And we are having a part in that. We are financially contributing. These are, these, some of these people are going like Mark or young people in college Without a job, uh, he doesn't have the money. And so he has the youth and the vitality and the desire to go, and so we help a little bit on the financial means. All right, then the next part, 
dealt with uh, our own personality. And we noted that uh, these qualities of being humble and, and uh, taking these other spiritual qualities within ourselves were of such a nature that it meant not always doing what we wanted to do. Uh, for example, when we strive to overcome evil with good, that's not what we want to do. When somebody does something bad to us, we like to come right back at them. And so whenever we don't do that, and we go ahead and say, hey, that's what I'd like to do. You know, he zapped me, I'll zap him back. But the Lord said that that's not the way we're to go about it. We're to try to overcome evil with good. What's the motivation? God has overcome my evil with his good. At a time when I was in rebellion against God, Jesus died for me. I know how it's affected me that I was willing to change a life in rebellion against God to one wanting to serve him touched by that act of love. And so then the motivation is, if I can be touched by an act of love and change my actions and my way of life, then maybe the other fellow can too. And so then that becomes the motivation to sacrifice what you want to do and go ahead and do what he asks you to do. Now, the point we're going to, the time, where we're going to spend our time today has to do with our relationship to the governing authorities. And this is something that Christians have had to deal with uh, all through the centuries. The Jews uh, before the church uh, had to deal with it also. Uh, keep in mind, as Paul writes this, he writes as a devout Jew brought up in a time when Israel is a captive, conquered captive of Rome. And not only that, going all the way back to 605 B.C., Israel has not been a sovereign nation. Babylon conquered them, Medo-Persia conquered them, Greece conquered them, and Rome conquered them. And so then the question was always in the Jewish mind, what is our relationship to the civil government? Well, as Paul writes this, and Christianity is in the process of going through the world, and the world at this time, the known world, is controlled by Rome, Again, it becomes a question. Uh, we are God's people. We're God's priest. Uh, we've been set apart. What is our function to the civil government? We have to answer that here in the United States and deal with it in various ways. That uh, uh, There's, for example, a big battle going on now. The biggest one, I guess, that's going on with people that are believers, uh, at least many of which, and those that are not, is, is this thing over abortion. And as a result of the Roe-Wade decision in, I believe, 73, uh, abortion became legal in this country, and, and it's been debated. But then a question has to determine on this thing, uh, do we have a responsibility to go out and try to force whatever we believe on others, or how do we handle that thing? Do we just do what is right ourselves? as long as nobody forces us to do something against our will that's contrary to the will of God, should we get active out there and should we be marching in the streets? Uh, uh, how do we handle this? And so Christians uh, are going to have to deal with that thing. Another area that our society is dealing with is the capital punishment. And there are those people that are saying that it's wrong and it's inhuman punishment. And, and then how do we as Christians a react to that kind of thing. And so, in anything with the civil government, how do we deal with it? Well, to fully appreciate, I think, well, I shouldn't use the word fully. I don't, I don't claim to have any full understanding of everything Paul is saying here. But to at least begin to get a handle on it, 
we have to at least go back and look at the historical setting that Paul writes this under. And that is, Paul is not living in a democracy. And it makes you maybe even appreciate more what he's saying here. He's not living in a democracy. And we begin to see that uh, a government can be acceptable even though it's not a democracy. He was living under a dictatorship. And that dictatorship had imposed certain laws. And so writing from a, a situation where Paul himself is a Roman citizen, but it's not a democracy, and his question is, how do we deal with our relationship to the civil government? Let's start uh, in verse 19 of chapter 12 because it, it gets into a principle that uh, is uh, maybe better seen if we look at it in harmony with what we have in chapter 13. Beginning in verse 19. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it's written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. All right, the question becomes, and by the way, where it says, uh, do not take revenge, but leave room for God's wrath, there are those that come along and say that uh, Christians should not support the death penalty or for people to be punished or anything, that uh, we should just let God you know, take vengeance, that we're not to get in and to, and to do those things. There's no question here that, that on our individual one-on-one -on -one contact that we're to strive to overcome evil with good, we're not to take it upon ourselves to take vengeance uh, in, the, in the world or anything of that nature. But we're going to see something, I think, going into this 13th chapter, that this attitude of uh, vengeance belonging to God doesn't mean that you have to go through this life placating criminals and rapists and, and murderers because you believe that you just simply cannot handle them in any way unless God decides to zap them in some way. The question is, there's no question vengeance belongs to God, but the question is, how does God exercise that? Uh, is it something where we just let people do wrong things uh, with the hope that God will deal with them in some mystical sense? Or, or does God lay out a plan and tell you uh, at least one of the ways that he deals? Okay, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. There is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Now, notice what he said. Everyone, speaking to Christians, must submit themselves to the existing authorities. And he says there is no authority except that which has been established or ordained by God. Well, how did this take place? Does that mean that, uh, that uh, Caesar is God's hand-picked person? Or does it mean that from a providential standpoint, God has allowed this and that in the final analysis, God is in control? Well, let's go back and, and look at history before we get up here with Caesar. Remember when Nebuchadnezzar, our first world empire, Nebuchadnezzar defeated all the countries round about him for Babylon, and he defeated Israel. And remember that while this was taking place, Jeremiah referred to him as a servant of God. That God was providentially blessing his efforts. He allowed it to happen. He used Nebuchadnezzar as a tool to punish Israel 
and these other surrounding nations. It wasn't because Nebuchadnezzar was a great guy. He would eventually judge Babylon. But God allowed this to happen. And so on the surface, the Jew saw Nebuchadnezzar defeating Israel, destroying the city, destroying the temple, carrying Jews into captivity. But the prophets were saying all the time, you're being punished for your sins. And God has providentially blessed the efforts of Nebuchadnezzar. And then the prophets were saying that Nebuchadnezzar is going to get too big for his past. He's going to come to the conclusion that, that he did all this on his own and he and his pagan idols. God will deal with him. So he's going to use him to punish you and others, but then he'll deal with him. And so God calls Cyrus by name before he's even born and refers to him as his servant and said that even though you don't know me, I know you and I've chosen you. Isaiah records this in 44 and 45. So Cyrus comes in and defeats Babylon and the Medo-Persians rule and uh, accumulate a little more ground to add to what Babylon had. Well, then after that, Daniel speaks that there's this great he-goat coming from the west. And he's going to run into Medo-Persia, the ram of two horns, and just trample them down and defeat them. And Alexander the Great does exactly that. And then he said Alexander's kingdom is going to be divided up in four parts after his death. And it happened. And then he said one of those four parts, a man that we would know by the name of Antagonus Epiphanes, would actually come against Israel and defeat Israel and, and defeat the holy city and set up a pagan worship at the temple. God allowed it to happen. It was punishment to the Jews for their sin, but it doesn't mean God endorsed Antagonus Epiphanes. Then he said the mightiest kingdom that's ever existed would come. And he said, this is a terrible country. He couldn't even depict it with any animal that was known to man. For example, Medo-Persia, he had depicted with a ram. Uh, Alexander the Great, he depicted with a leper. But there was no depiction. He said that uh, as he wrote, he said, man, I, I don't even have anything for this one. It's just, he's terrible. This was Rome. And Rome conquered. And so now Rome, Paul said that every governing authority has been established by God. Rome has been allowed to come to the situation and by the way, remember when we talked about the spread of the gospel and we noted that how important it was that Rome controlled the world rather than Israel? What would have happened to Christianity if Rome had not conquered Israel and controlled them? What would have happened to Christianity? They'd have killed it before they got out of Jerusalem. Israel did everything they could to wipe out and destroy Christianity and it was the protection of Rome that allowed Christianity to thrive. What would they have done to Paul, the Jews, without Rome? Kill him. That's what they wanted to do. Forty men took an oath and said, man, we won't even eat until we kill Paul. They didn't eat, they starved. Because Paul with several hundred Roman soldiers around him, lived for a number of more years and preached a whole lot more sermons and did his best letter writing in jail. Well, when Rome's got him in jail, he's protected from these Jewish nuts that want to kill him and does his best letter writing. What I'm trying to say with the authority of governments, if we don't watch ourselves, we can sit back and say, hey, 
this guy can't be of God and I as a Christian need to rise up and kick him down. Let the world and that guy fight it out. You don't know uh, what God is doing uh, with that person. We just know that God is in control and God, God doesn't tamper with people's free will. He's allowing that person to live. He's allowing that person to be. So as long as that power exists, it is existing with the approval of God. God could destroy it if he wanted to. Or God could allow it to self-destruct. But it, you and I have to be careful before we think we're going to determine who all the governments are when Paul is saying that no authority can even exist except as one established by God. And, and he said that Christians then ought to recognize themselves as being under the governing authority. So wherever we live, we're pilgrims in the world. We're citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Our patriotism lies with the kingdom of God. America is number two. Think about America. Man, I don't want to throw anything at patriotism. You know, I'm patriotic uh, in, in certain senses. Uh, uh, you know, I, it's been a multitude of years since I've been out of the Marine Corps. When I hear the Marine Corps hymn, my emotions and all still feel it. That's 40 years. There, I, when, I, when I watch the Olympics and, and, and an American wins a gold medal and they raise that flag, I'm there, you know. But I have to grab hold and say, hey, look now, is that just my emotions from youth because of my situation? Would I feel the same way if I was in another country and their flag was raised? I think I would. What about America? So far as a Christian's allegiance. From a standpoint of sin, you'd probably have a hard time finding a more ungodly country than our society. Some of the countries in the world that we look down on will not tolerate the kind of immorality that we accept in this country. Your chances of getting mugged in New York City or Chicago or Los Angeles are far greater than your chances of getting mugged in Iran or Moscow or New Delhi are peaking China. A lady's chances of being raped in the United States are greater than many other and most other countries in the world today. A criminal's chance of going scot-free for murder or rape is greater in the United States than in most of the countries in the world. Rome was in charge here Paul is telling Christians that whatever authority is there, be subject to the authority. It's ordained of God. It exists. It'll fall. It's corrupt of its own corruptness, but right now it exists, and you and I, whether you're Republican or Democrat or Independent or whatever, whatever authority is there, then while it's there, we respect it. So, Everyone must present himself, submit himself to the governing authorities. There's no authority except that which is God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against that which God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. I don't believe that Christians, if I understand that correctly, can rise up in mass 
to rebel against their government using the Bible as the authority that may do it. Rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. You know that most governments in the world, if you are a moral, upright person who doesn't steal, lie, or cheat, or murder, and you work hard and you take care of your family, in most governments of the world, you really would have no, the one where you would have still have fears is the exception to the rule. In most of them, in that condition, uh, you would be accepted. Rulers owe no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. Now we note something about this thing of leaving vengeance to God. If you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword for nothing. Speaking of the government. He is God's servant, an angel of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities. Okay. What does he say that the government has as part of his mission? That he's a servant of God. Notice it says, vengeance is mine. God said, I will repay. But then God says, I have ordained civil governments to exist. Governments, God says, have a right to exist. Can you imagine living in a country with no government? There'd be anarchy, wouldn't there? One of the problems they had with the, after the fall of the communist government behind the Iron Curtain is there was nothing else to replace it. And so there was just anarchy. Look what happened in Yugoslavia when the communist government failed. There's probably been more people killed in Yugoslavia in the past year than was killed all the time the communist government was in charge. Now, I'm not saying I want the communist government back. I'm glad it failed. But what I'm saying is that whenever the, you, you have no governing authority that people respect, there is anarchy. There is nothing to hold people in check. I wouldn't want to... when. I'm not up here to compliment whoever is uh, sure. I don't know that much about whoever is sheriff or the police or whatever in the community, but I'm going to tell you this. When, when the sheriff and his crew leaves, and when the policemen leave, and the state police leave Grundy County, then I'm going to leave Grundy County. Because I don't believe it would be a fit place to live. They, they hold some semblance of authority. Uh, they, I think there are fewer drunks on the road, fewer people breaking in, fewer people raping and doing bad things as a result of the authorities that be. And so they're there, and you have anarchy without it. And so he says authorities, civil governments, have a right to exist, and not only that, they are in, in this sense of punishing criminals, they are God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. So... Paul didn't have any problem with the civil government punishing the wrongdoer, did he? Well, flip on back and see how strong he believed that to the 25th chapter of Acts. Hold your place there. And flip on back to the 25th chapter of Acts. Let's deal with this thing of capital punishment from the eyes of Paul. In verse 10 of chapter 25, as Paul stands before Festus, Paul answered, I'm now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. I have not done any wrong to the Jews, as you yourselves know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything, 
deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has a right to hand me over to them. So Paul uses the court system of Rome. He said, now if I have done something worthy of death, then I deserve to die and Rome ought to execute me. But I'm here making my appeal because I haven't done anything wrong, therefore Rome ought to defend me. So we can see several things here. It is right for Christians to use the court system to protect themselves against wrongdoers. Paul did. And so there's nothing wrong with Christians using the ordained powers and the court systems. That means if somebody's going to break into our house, call the police. If somebody is, is stealing in your neighborhood and, and you need to be a witness for the powers that be to convict that person, then be a witness for the powers that be to convict that person who's guilty of wrongdoing that, the authorities have the right to punish that person. And if you are being wronged in some way, you don't have to just sit back and take it. You can go to court and make your appeal and stand up and defend yourself. And that's what Paul did. And when you watch criminals parade before the courts who are murderers and rapists and, and who say, hey, vengeance belongs to God. You know, you're, you're just like I am if you take my life. That's right. The Bible says vengeance belongs to God. But it also says in the very next breath that the ordained civil government is God's messenger of wrath for the evildoer and they have the right to mete out punishment. Paul said they even have the right to take his life if he'd done anything worthy of it. In the Old Testament, in beginning, if you want to flip to another place, in Genesis, the ninth chapter, Verse 6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God, God has made man. What was the reason for the death penalty? You know, people will come along and say, well, you're not going to bring this other person back by taking the life of this murderer. What was the reason he gave for the death penalty? Man is made in the image of God. And no other man has the right to, in a premeditated way, take his life. And any man who takes it upon himself to take the life of another person, God says, kill that man. Take his life. Because he has taken a right that he does not have. And so the death penalty has to do with the dignity of man. We live in an in a almost atheistic society. <coughs> Evolution is programmed into the minds of our young people. And when we begin to think of ourselves as so much cattle, then man loses his dignity. His dignity comes from the fact that he's made in the image of God. And so you ought to be able to walk, no matter who you are, man, woman, child, black or white, and know I am made in the image of God, and God does not give the right to any human being to snuff out my life. And if somebody can snuff out a life made in the image of God, and then two years later, he's on the street. What we're saying is, this person's life had no worth or dignity beyond two years' value to some criminal. All right, now, one other place. Come to Exodus, the 20th chapter, to one of the Ten Commandments. Because it's misused in this line. In verse 13 of Exodus 20, it says, You shall not murder. So the criminal who does murder says, hey, one of the Ten Commandments says you shall not murder. Therefore, if you take my life, you're just as bad as I am. Well, 
move on to the 21st chapter, the 12th verse, and, and notice what it says. It says, number one, don't murder, but what about the guy that does? Anyone who strikes a man and kills him shall surely be put to death. However, if he does not do it intentionally, God lets it happen. He's to flee to a place I will designate. But if a man schemes and kills another man deliberately, take him away from my altar and put him to death. So, in having the death penalty according to the law of God, before the law of Moses, during the law of Moses, and at the time of Paul, involved one decision that you had to make. Here's a person who will say he's taken another person's life. If, if he did not do it intentionally, then he's not a murderer. And the writer continues to go into that fight. If it happens by accident, he can flee and his case be heard by the judge and he would not be condemned as a murderer. But if he schemed and took this person's life intentionally, then he said his life was to be taken. If we were pursuing what God says on that in our society, then when people take other people's lives, the only decision we should have to make is did they do it in a premeditated, scheming way, or was it, it was an accidental type situation? And if it was done in a premeditated way and they committed murder, then their life should be taken. And the interesting thing here as a result of not submitting to this principle, our society is literally being wrecked by repeat criminals. 80% of sex offenders that go back into our society commit the same crimes over again. And a murderer who goes back in our society, according to statistics, is many, many, many times more apt to do it again than somebody else is for the first time. I think personally, when a man reaches the point that he can, in a premeditated way, hate to the point of taking another life, I believe he has to have seared his conscience. I just don't, uh, of all the things that one can do, I don't know how a person, I can see it in self-defense. I can see it as an accident. I can see it even through carelessness. But when a man reaches the point that he can have the kind of hatred that in a premeditated way could take it upon himself to take the life of another person, I don't know how you deal with that person. He's obviously seared his conscience. God's way was that was it. He has shown that he is unfit to live in human society. So, we see here that when it comes to this Christian and his life, we've dealt with him as an individual, we've dealt with him in the church, we've dealt with him from the standpoint of his personality, and now Paul begins to deal with him in the 13th chapter relative to the civil government. And we're told that they're ordained by God, they have a right to exist. You would have an anarchy without government. Christians ought to submit to the authorities that be. We ought not to be a rebellious type people. And that doesn't mean that we give in on things that are contrary to the law of God. A good example, when Pharaoh said, kill all the male children, midwives were complimented for their faith when they refused to do it. When the apostles were told, don't, don't go preach Jesus, they said, you be the judge, do we obey you rather than men? In other words, no civil government has the authority to command us to do something that's contrary to the will of God. We do what God says. But on the other hand, as long as that does not in any way cause us to do something contrary to the will of God, we are submissive people to the civil government. And we respect the laws and we recognize that they are ordained by God. And that also, I believe, 
that when it comes to things like the death penalty and the punishment of criminals by the government, that we as Christians ought to be studious enough in the Bible. Many of these liberals that are speaking for us are not studious in the Bible at all. In fact, many of them don't believe it. It's just that they can use this Christian concept. They misunderstand Christianity if they think that because you're a Christian, you cannot believe that vengeance ought to be meted out to evil people who do wrong. The Bible says it's to be meted out, but it's not to be meted out by me as an individual. As an individual, I strive to overcome evil with good. But it's to be meted out from the standpoint of a civil government where that information would be heard by governing authorities and then if it is determined that somebody has done something even worthy of death, then the government has the right to take the life of that individual and we ought to support the government in that realm. Let's close for this morning and next week we'll pick up in the same place and talk about our relationship to the government and the laws and, and things of that nature. But let's conclude with our lesson and uh, remind everybody that it is our custom every time we meet and study from God's word to offer the opportunity if there is any among us that already knows and understands the good news of salvation in Jesus and desires to respond and have the opportunity as together we stand and sing.